This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. When I hear you give your reasons, I remarked, the thing always appears to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process, and yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently. How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed. And yet you have seen. And that is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. End quote. And that is an exchange between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson who are fictional characters in the famous Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's series named for the former. Now, there are a total of four novels and 56 short stories that comprise the Sherlock Holmes series of books. And they were published from 1887 to 1927. And they were wildly popular. Remember, this is a period of time where there is no television, there's no radio. What you had was the newspaper, and that's where these were published. And Sherlock Holmes is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most portrayed literary human character in film and TV history, meaning Sherlock Holmes grew out of the newspapers at the turn of the 20th century and has stuck in the minds of people for so long that they've actually, he's grown into a completely different medium of TV and film and now holds a record for that. And that to me is fascinating. Right, to, to bridge the gap between one form of entertainment to another and to do so so well and so frequently that the Guinness Book of World Records recognizes you is quite the, quite the accomplishment. And so this quote, this exchange between Watson and Holmes, comes from one of the short stories, one of the early short stories, called A Scandal in Bohemia. And it was originally published in the Strand magazine, which was a magazine from 1891 to 1950. And so, of course, I find myself wondering as I read through these things, because the quote is interesting, and the fact that it happened at the turn of the 20th century is interesting, but why is Sherlock Holmes still so popular? What about this character endures to today that captures the minds and, and attentions of people to the point where companies with limited budget and limited airtime choose to make series and movies about these two characters. And I think what it is, at least for me, is it's his somehow, it's his captivating ability as a character to solve seemingly unsolvable cases so easily. And he does this as a, as he, as he calls himself, a consulting detective. And he's called in often to help crack a case that, that's, that the local law enforcement is just befuddled by. And of course, they mean, there's a dramatic setup here where the local police are fumbling over themselves, they're falling short, they can't do it. Then they call in Sherlock Holmes, and he, at the, in the blink of an eye, determines 
the guilty party and the the method by which things happened and how how things played out, et cetera, et cetera. And his use of logic and knowledge creates this this archetype, this enviable archetype, the not just smart, because Sherlock Holmes is certainly smart. You can hear that in, in the things that he says. He's a very smart character. But he's also able to take that intelligence and apply it in a way that is beneficial. And I think that is the magic, right? That's where the magic happens, is not only is Sherlock Holmes smart, but he can apply his intelligence in a productive way. And we all kind of we all kind of fancy ourselves to be, you know, quote, Holmesian, you know, to be that kind of Sherlock Holmes-type character, like, to look at the world around us, to observe something and say, ah, oh, something was here. Somebody stepped here. We do our, our Holmesian investigations when we open the refrigerator and something has moved. Who? Right? You do it all the time. And there's a sense of satisfaction that comes from it, from, from figuring out something, from using your reasoning skills to figure out something. Technically, what Holmes employs most of the time is what's called abduction or abductive reasoning. And you may not have heard of that. I hadn't spent a lot of time. I'd heard of it in passing, but it was certainly not something that was that I was overly familiar with. So naturally, you all know how I operate at this point. I wanted to know more. And Merriam-Webster, the, the famous dictionary folks, I guess, has a handy reasoning primer that you can look up. Most of us have heard of deductive reasoning. Even some of us have heard of inductive reasoning. And Merriam-Webster lays out those two plus abductive as the three primary forms of reason. Of course, knowing that there are three of those, I said, well, okay, what are, what are the differences? Well, Merriam-Webster says, I'm glad you asked. Deductive reasoning is utilizes generally accepted facts to deduce local facts or local generalizations. So we go from large to small, so to speak, from general to local. So, for example, the example that the, the primer gives is, let's say that you know that you have a dentist appointment at 10 a.m., right? That is a generally accepted fact, a global fact. If you were to ask anybody at the dentist's office in your house, when is my dentist appointment? 10 a.m. is the answer. And you know another generally accepted fact that it takes 30 minutes to drive to the dentist. Using deductive reasoning, you would say that if your appointment is at 10 and it takes 30 minutes to drive there, you would deduce that you need to leave at 9.30 to get to your 10 o'clock appointment. That's deductive reasoning. So we do this all the time. We do this without even realizing that we're doing it. And sometimes knowing that it has a title makes it more difficult. You might as well just do live your life without knowing what you're doing, I guess. So that's deductive reasoning. We do it all the time. Inductive reasoning goes from a generalization. It's a form of generalization based on observations. So based on anecdotal observations, we draw a generalization. So generally, this is a small sample. We draw large inferences from small sample sizes here. So for example, again, Merriam-Webster uses this as its example. If you have five friends who, and I think they use hot dog or something like that, but I'm going to say this. If you see five friends who are all talking about a show, and even if they don't say that it's good, but they're all talking about it, and you can hear in their in the tone of their voice and see what they're doing, that they appear to be happy about it, you can inductively reason that the show is good, and therefore you may want to watch it. So that is taking from a local, small, anecdotal set of information and developing a broader generalization. 
And this can be good and bad, right? You can see how if you take a very small sample size of something, you can blow it up into and apply across a large spectrum of things. And that can be a problem, right? I don't think I need to go into detail of how that happens around us all the time as well. One or two small things happen. People take those one or two small things and they apply a broad sweeping generalization to a large group. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks there, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. So that's deductive and inductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is what Sherlock Holmes does primarily, and it is a probabilistic conclusion from an observation. So these are situations where you can't know, and of course, you can't know for certain a lot of things when it comes to crime scene investigation, which is a lot of what Sherlock Holmes does. Something happens, he gets called in, he looks around the room, he's observing things around the room, and then he draws a conclusion, a probabilistic conclusion. This is most likely what happened. This is the almost the Occam's razor of the reasoning. So, for example, if you are a crime scene detective, let's pretend we are Sherlock Holmes for a moment, and you see a dead body in a bathtub full of water, and a hairdryer in the bathtub. You, using abductive reasoning, may assume, may generally assume, you're drawing a probabilistic conclusion here, that what caused that person to die in that bathtub was that the hairdryer fell into the bathtub and the person was electrocuted. Now, is that possible? Absolutely. Well, what else could have happened? That person could have had a heart attack. That person could have had a heart attack died in the bathtub, and in between the time where that person died, their house cat walked into the bathroom and knocked the hairdryer into the bathtub. So the hairdryer didn't kill the person, the heart attack did. But you don't know. So you're using abductive reasoning to draw a conclusion, a probabilistic, meaning that there is a, a strong probability that this is what happened, based on observations. That's what Sherlock Holmes does. Now I know what you're saying. That's pretty neat, Matt. Let's get back to the quote. I agree. So here's the quote one more time. I'll run through it and listen closely for some of the things that Holmes is saying to Watson. And of course, it's, it's Watson speaking first. He's speaking to Holmes and then Holmes is responding. Quote, when I hear you give your reasons, I remarked, the thing always appears to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down on an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently. How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed. And yet you have seen. This is just my point. Now I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. End quote. And one common theme that we see throughout Sherlock Holmes' stories, all of them, and I haven't read them all, but I've read some, is the seemingly improbable or almost impossible abductions that Holmes regularly identifies. And that's a great literary effect, right? It's a great literary tool. The writer obviously knows the end. The writer knows how things happen, and creating the tension of, we'll never solve this. Nobody knows how this happened. And then in walks Sherlock Holmes, and you get this great reveal. I mean, it's a very page-turning way to write books, and it's part of the reason why Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, their author, were so popular back in the day. And Watson is, therefore, most of us, right, completely lost 
until shown the magical algorithm that yields the solution. Right? It's like the first time that you sat in a math class and your professor walked you through how to do how to use the Pythagorean theorem to solve a, a right triangle. Right? And I may, I may have just lost some of you, but stay with me for a moment. The first time you do that and the first time you get an answer that comes out the other side, you go, wow, that's incredible. And after you do that for a little while, it seems simple. And you go, of course, that's exactly how it works. Right? You showed me the magic trick, right? the magic path to follow, the algorithm to follow, so to speak, to arrive at the conclusion that you did. And now it seems so simple. I don't understand why I couldn't do that myself. It's why we watch shows like NCIS and CSI and all those other crime shows, because there's a, there's a mystery. And each one of those is sort of written and, and recorded in the same kind of Holmesian way, right? When you watch a show like NCIS, you see them draw, come to a conclusion. They use abductive reasoning to, or a mix of all the reasonings, really, but very usually abductive reasoning to determine what happened. And there's this great reveal. And it's, there's a sense, I, there's a sense of accomplishment. <laughs> you didn't do it, but you watched somebody else do it and it brought you joy to see somebody figure it out. Of course, let's not forget that this is a literary, again, these are literary tools that Arthur Conan Doyle uses to veil or hold back or de-emphasize certain info so as to maintain the mystery, right? I mean, we don't, we're not actually standing there with Watson and Holmes. What we see in the room of the crime scene or what we know in the room of the crime scene is only what the author allows us to see. So perhaps in, and, and I would say that even though that's the case, were we actually there with Watson and Holmes, it would still be an impressive feat for the things that he does. And, of course, from an author's perspective, their interest is in maintaining the mystery so that we continue to turn more pages. But were you there to see this process in person? And I don't know if perhaps I have a listener out there or two that is uh, in crime scene investigation or knows someone who is or knows somebody who just has extremely strong abductive reasoning skills who you watch them work and you see the wheels churning in their mind and what comes out the other side is just an impressive feat. You just go, I, I have no idea how you did that. No idea. Don't understand it. Because certainly, like anything else, there are going to be people that are more strong in their abductive reasoning than others. And to that end, of course, you know, that, that comes as a challenge to me. How dare you say that I'm there might be somebody better at abductive reasoning than me? Well, that can't be right. Of course, it can be developed, right? Like anything. So I ask myself, well, what well, could I do it? Could I be Sherlock Holmes? And I know that's a crazy question to ask. He's a fictional character, Matt. But I don't think... I don't think so. I don't think I, I don't think I'm Sherlock Holmes, but I think I could probably train those skills. I could develop those abductive reasoning skills. And I think some people do from watching things, like I said before, the CSIs, the NCISs, um, the other crime documentary shows. You can start to see things. You start to look for things. And of course, you're only presented with certain information in those shows because that's how those shows keep you interested as well. But you can also go to school. There are degrees in these things. Um, and I think the big takeaway from all of this is not just that Sherlock Holmes is an interesting character who uses abductive reasoning to solve seemingly intractable problems. That's all true. But going back to what Holmes and Watson are talking about here is observing versus seeing. We talked about last episode about how we focus our attentions and where we look and what we see and what we listen to and how that impacts our lives. Well, there's a lot of things, and you've probably noticed this. You ever put on the TV in the background just to have some background noise? Or if you're like me, you put on a podcast while you're doing other things, and you miss certain things. 
You miss the details of things. It, it happens to the best of us. Your attentions get drawn elsewhere and you miss the thing that you were there for. I think that the, the challenge today is pretty apparent. You know, Holmes lays it out to Watson pretty clearly. You've seen, but you don't observe. Your eyes were directed at an area, and you saw, but you didn't observe. And it's that act of observation that I think matters here. I think it's the ability to see and there, and not just take in the inputs, not just take in the colors that come into your eyes and see them, but to process them into something meaningful. To take in data and to put it through some type of observation algorithm and make something meaningful, make meaningful information out of it. I think that's the key here. And so that's the challenge going forward today. As you walk around and as you look, and I'm not saying that everything is a crime scene. I'm not saying everything warrants deep investigation. You can overfocus on things too. But as you look around today, as you walk through your house or you go outside, you're driving in your car, try to observe, not just see. What can you abduct or induct or deduct from the world around you? What can you observe and assume you can have your own Sherlock Holmes moments on a walk from your bedroom to the kitchen, your drive to work, your walk around the block. Those feelings of satisfaction, they'll sharpen your skills, and you'll observe the world around you vice just seeing it. And it's all a skill. We all want to be seen and heard, or, more accurately, we want to be observed for substance and listened to for valuable content, right? Not just seen and heard. That's what somebody like... Watson would do. Holmes would observe us for our substance and would listen to us for the value of the things we have to say. So look for the value in others. Look for the substance of others. Observe the world around you. And I hope that you too, in turn, are observed and not just seen. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.